we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello and welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. My name is Willow Truman. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. Oh, did I, I, yeah, you just fucking cut me I, off. I thought Thanks that's how we lot, do it. Sequoia. I thought that's the format. <laughs> we should say the name after you say the name. <laughs> you didn't okay. warn, me, well, warn actually, me of a format change. So this isn't, this actually isn't our nonsense bizarre today it's not yeah this this is gonna be upton sinclair's nonsense hour (laughs) (laughs) a string of words that have never been put together before by anyone okay like of all people did could you have ever predicted that's who we're gonna be focusing on upton sinclair's nonsense hour yes so like tell me what what do you know about him he was a uh he was a journalist, a writer. He was one of the first like muckrakers, you know, getting getting down and getting dirty. down and dirty. He wrote the Jungle, which yes. is like a novel about meatpacking plants that was like highly accurate and highly disturbing. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was that song written about it, "Welcome to the Jungle." Ah, <laughs> yes, that was about yeah, the book, about actually. It. Wow, such a! I didn't know they were so literary, Guns and Roses. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Just like. You know, take a listen to the lyrics and you'll figure it out. <laughs> First, yeah. Didn't, yeah, I always get Upton Sinclair. Not always, but like happens. I forget that him and uh, Rudyard Kipling are two different people. Yeah, he's usually mistaken for Sinclair Lewis, interestingly enough. Who is that? He's another author from that time period. Okay. Yeah. It's fascinating that people get them confused because Sinclair Lewis actually was a janitor and Upton Sinclair's like utopian commune that he really he made yeah believe it believe it or not huh so we're gonna be talking about that but first let's uh let's go back a little bit let's get the time period set we're in baltimore 1878 so upton sinclair the author of the famous book, The Jungle, that exposed uh, the the meatpacking industry in Chicago. He was born on September 20th, where he lived in poverty on North Charles Street. In Baltimore. In Baltimore, Maryland. And just less than a mile and a half away lived his wealthy maternal grandparents. Nice. Right? Like... (laughs) Okay. Their family had come from generations of wealth and society, but most of the family fortune had been lost during the Civil War. And during my, you know, deep investigative research, I uncovered that his grandparents' home is now a Chinese restaurant called China Walk. Um uh, one woman, Darlene Cole, says the food is delicious, but they, they don't give as much shrimp as they used to. And another person said, just skip it. Uh, she was in the bathroom all night after going there. <laughs> so, I don't know. Like, I just think it's funny that he was living down the street from, like, his grandparents that were wealthy but didn't really help out his family, and now it's a... It's a Chinese restaurant. You know, give more shrimp. Yeah, come on now. (laughs) You can't do that. Yeah. Can't skimp on the shrimp. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So this wealth disparity that he 
saw between his life and his grandparents was kind of what spurred his interest in class inequality, which became one of his lifelong interests. Wait, his grandparents wouldn't give him any of their money, so he just he, he became an activist? Yeah, I guess so, <laughs> you know? Why not? Um, Also, so his father, who was also named Upton, was an alcoholic who owned a liquor store, which made the family's financial situation a bit fragile. Ooh. (laughs) Like, what a... Pretty convenient for him. Yeah, but I don't know. I... I wouldn't be able to like own a synthesizer store or anything. Like I just yeah, you just I, play with them all day. Get high on my own supply. Yeah, and that's exactly what he did. So the family moved to the part of New York that they could afford to live in when Upton was around ten years old. He studied at City University of New York and at Columbia University, earning money for tuition by writing <clears throat> fiction and ethnic jokes, as well as dime <laughs> novels. You could make running money writing racist jokes back in the day? Oh, you sure could. Fuck. He felt that American education failed to face up to the existence of poverty and the problems that it caused in society. He sort of came to regard socialism as a kind of secular religion. Yeah. Yeah. His conversion to socialism started in 1903, and his beliefs were strengthened when, as a reporter for the Socialist Weekly, appealed to reason, he was sent to conduct a seven-week undercover investigation at the Chicago Stockyards, 1904. That led to The Jungle. You know, we, we all know the book. We all know the song. We know the story of The Jungle. We don't really need to talk about it. Yeah, working <laughs> conditions were shit. Yes. It was gross. Yeah. Meow. Podcat just walked through. Yeah. Pause for meow meow. Okay. <laughs> pause, so pause for meow meow. After the success of the novel, which was like, he had written other books before that, but this one like really took off. He made a lot of money with it and he decided what he wanted to do with the money was lend his name to various reform efforts, including several communal living projects. Okay. And the most notable of those was the scandalous Helicon Home Colony, which crashed and burned just six months after its inception. Like, literally, it burned down. No shit. The Helicon Home Colony? Yeah, also known as Helicon Hall. Helicon Hall. Yeah, so we'll be talking more about that later. Also, after moving around a whole bunch to a bunch of different states... Uh, Sinclair moved to California, where he ran for governor in 1934 as a Democrat. He was like, mm, socialism isn't mainstream enough. And he lost to... Democrat. <laughs> yeah. So he, he converted. <laughs> he lost to a boring conservative candidate named Frank Miriam, thanks to dirty tricks by Hollywood producers. who oh. didn't, They didn't agree with Sinclair's plan to eliminate poverty in California. Did, they didn't agree with it, or they... Didn't think it was... They didn't think it was possible. Yeah. What was his plan, do you know? What, what was, you what can read his on? book about... He actually... He wrote a whole fucking, like, little booklet before he even ran, <laughs> visualizing that he had ran and that he won and here was his plan. Sort of like... Trying to manifest he was trying it. To, he before, was trying to magic his way into... Yeah. He wrote a whole book about okay. it happening before it happened, even though it didn't actually happen. But that didn't actually happen. But he did... He won the primary, so that's pretty fucking good. Hey. That's really good. It worked a little bit. And he probably would have won the election, too, if it wasn't for the third-party candidate. Fucking Ralph Nader at it again. Yeah. He never stops. So even though he didn't win, it did 
help push the Democratic Party more to the left and become more progressive. He even influenced the New Deal programs developed under Roosevelt, and it sort of marked the beginning of a new era in media politics and attack ads. So we'll be looking into those attack ads a little bit today, and they're kind of funny. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is this is the birth of like the, the attack ad. The, yeah, kind of. Yeah, totally. Interesting. Because that's like, <laughs> I mean, I've never known a world where politics wasn't like, I mean, it's fucking ridiculous now. It's not even worth talking about, but it's like... Yeah. But even my whole it life has just has been politics has been like the football game. It's been an attack. Yeah, at attack. one point in time, that wasn't the case. You know, there wasn't political ads on TV. There wasn't like, yeah, yeah. you know. <clears throat> so Sinclair continued to write both fiction and nonfiction. He wrote over 90 books, many winning literary awards. But there's one specific book that stands out above the rest. One that we have to talk about. We're not talking about the jungle. No. Nobody needs to hear about it. We all know about it. And we're not going to talk about the weird book he wrote about how starving yourself can cure disease. It can't. Don't <laughs> do that. Go get yourself a snack right now, in fact. Snacking is good. Snacking's great. Nor are we going to talk about <laughs> his children's book with an environmental message about redwoods titled The Gnome-Mobile, starring <laughs> Globo and Bobo the Gnomes. <laughs> I want to talk about Globo and Bobo, though. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> but we can't. We'll, t- we'll hang out and at uh, off air. saving and sequoia trees, I know. Too. So, like, and the Disney movie based on the Gnome Mobile was released on my birthday. So we both have this tie to the Gnome Mobile. We have to, we have to watch the Gnome Mobile. I know. <laughs> so not going to talk about the jungle. Not going to talk about the Gnome Mobile. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to talk about his 1930 classic Mental radio. And I'll note that this came out before his election. Interesting. Yeah. Mental so, radio. Mental radio. What does it sound like it's about? I mean, it sounds like it's telepathy, right? Yes. Yeah. So Sinclair's second wife, Mary Craig Kimbrough Sinclair. That's kind of a tongue twister. Mary Mary Claire. Craig Kimbrough. Craig Kimbrough. Wait. Craig Kimbrough is a tongue twister. Try to say it five times. Craig Kimbrough. Craig Kimbrough. <laughs> Craig Kimbrough. You have to say a fast. Kim- I'm working. I'm working up to it. Craig Kimbrough. <laughs> Craig Kimbrough. <laughs> Craig Kimbrough. Craig, Craig, Craig Kimbrough. Yeah, it's a little difficult. What's your full name? Mary Claire Craig Kimbrough. Mary Craig Kimbrough Sinclair. Mary Craig Kimbrough Sinclair. Yes. That's an she- incantation. She had fallen into a deep depression, and in her dark night of the soul, she developed an interest in occultism. So the book Mental Radio documents Upton's attempts to document her supernatural abilities, and he himself had actually developed an interest in paranormal phenomena after hearing a Unitarian minister assert that he had seen and spoken to ghosts. Just one, he just heard one dude's ghost story, and he was like, wow, there's something to this. Yeah, I guess hell of a fucking he put story. a lot of stock in that Unitarian minister. Yeah, seriously. Um, so when you look up this book on, wait, hold on a second. Wasn't this man like a journalist? Isn't this yeah. man a fucking one well-told story just got him and convinced? Like, <laughs> that's all it that's took. That's what he does. He should know that trick. That's- all it took. Well, it wasn't Damn, just I wanna that. Damn, I want to hear the fucking ghost story. There's other parts of the story, too, that we'll hear about. But when you look up this book, and you can find it on sacredtext.org in its entirety, but on Google Books, something like got messed up because the preface for Mental Radio is instead a preface for a book about 
fishing in the Scotch Lock. Huh. Yeah, it's like from an old book called Scotch Lock Fishing by Black Palmer. And when I like copy pasted it, I found that this is happening with a ton of books around the internet where like (laughs) (laughs) the contents are being replaced with um, Scotch Lock Fishing. (laughs) So I don't know what that's about. (laughs) Someone explain that to me, please. What the wait, all books on the internet are being replaced? (laughs) <laughs> my scotch my scotch lock fishing what does that mean is a by just a, a particular book about fishing yeah, in the locks this of specific Scotland. one by black palmer it's like what? an old book too i don't know what's Who's going on doing this <laughs> i Did don't you know check the change law is it an honest mistake is it coordinated? I have no idea. I <laughs> I don't have the time to look into something like that. I just, I noted it. I thought, that's weird. I'll bring it up on the podcast. So many questions. <laughs> that's right. the most interesting thing I've ever heard in my life. So, um. All right. Well, oh, get- by the way, you know the movie There Will Be Blood? Yeah. That was loosely based on Upton Sinclair's book Oil. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, um. Yeah. And the other book or the other movie based on one of his books, The No Mobile, it has a theme song. So we're going to listen to that while we segue into our section on mental radio. Okay. As we ride along through the countryside, we're keeping our peepers open wide, looking to find where she may hide, the beautiful gnome for Jasper's bride. In the No Mobile, the No Mobile, we're hunting for gnomes in the No Mobile. Sooner or later we feel that we'll Find where she is in the no-mobile, or the no-mobile is a grand machine, the like of which I have never seen. That was Globo. That's Globo? That had to have been Globo. I don't know. That that was either Globo or Bobo. It was one of them. It was fucking one of them. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hear him sing again. (laughs) Okay. We we just rode the no mobile over to Mental Radio Town. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> like, thank you, Disney. What a uh, and Sequoia. You didn't see the visual, but it's a bunch of people. They're in a car, and there's a bunch of tiny little gnomes around them. Yeah. But they they're just regular people, like sized down and then put into the shot. And this is from like 1968, so the special Weird. effects. It's interesting. It it has a very uncanny effect. Yeah, to it. yeah. Um, all right. So Mary Craig Crim, Mary Crim, <laughs> Mary Crimbo. Um, she was a Southerner from Greenwood, Missouri. Her father was a wealthy planter, bank president, and judge. Which is like that's a lot of things. Yeah, bank president and judge. Yeah. So she showed signs of unusual perception since childhood. For instance. Uh, she would know that her mother wanted her before being summoned, which, yeah, I, okay, me too. My mom usually clears her throat before she's about to summon me. <laughs> <laughs> That's my sign, it's, you know, um, or she would dream the same things as her mom. Like they both dreamed that they found a needle in their bed Oof. and then her mom did find a needle in her bed. Did they both just have needles in their beds? Um, Mary did not have a needle in her bed. Mm. Just the mom. Sometimes Mary would also correctly anticipate the arrival of visitors and who they would be. And before the death of writer Jack London, a friend of the Sinclairs, Mary was aware that he was in terrible mental distress despite not being in contact with him for some time. Huh. 
But despite all of that, her early experiences of evangelical religion made her averse to spiritual matters, and her approach to life was resolutely practical. So okay, she didn't so really entertain this until later in life. Weird. Okay. Mm-hmm. Early in life, she wrote articles for newspapers and magazines. A book on Winnie Davis, the daughter of Jefferson Davis, sounds boring as fuck. Um, yeah. <laughs> like all of these, all of these, the stuff sounds boring as the books that they wrote anyway. Except for Mental Radio, which is pretty interesting. I, mean, so. I don't know. He, like Jefferson, da- like the, being the daughter of the president of the Confederacy would be. Yeah, maybe like, it, it is. It might super actually be really interesting. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'll have a change of heart when I'm middle-aged, too, and my interests will shift. Yes. Just like Mary's. Start writing historical biographies. Yeah. So before their marriage in 1913, Mary and Upton collaborated on Sylvia, a novel published the same year about a Southern girl based on Mary's own experiences. The couple moved to California, and around age 40, she started developing health problems as the result of, quote, the stress of taking on other people's problems. Like, oh, damn, Mary, (laughs) what's she going through? Just tell him to go suck eggs. Yeah, really. So at this time, a a buff, dark, mustached, hairy Polish man would would come into their lives and change up everything for the Sinclairs. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, he was this guy. Okay. He was named Count Roman Ostoha, a professional mind reader who had been traveling the West Coast under the stage name Nostradamus. Okay. But in mental radio, Sinclair refers to him simply as Jan. I mean, that's easy. And by the way, um, Roman Ostoha is not his real name. His probable real name was, and I'm going to butcher this, Mishko Roman Majerek Majerski. Mishko Roman Majerski. He came to the USA from Poland or was from Cleveland, depending on your source. (laughs) Uh, He claimed to have studied with occult masters in India and Tibet. Another one. Yes. Fucking, this is a character. (laughs) Who is this guy? Yeah, I know. The pictures out there of him are, like, incredible. You can find some, um, like, pamphlets for his shows. There's a picture of him hypnotizing a rabbit that I'm totally going to put on our Instagram. <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. So he could go into these deep trance states and anesthetize any part of his body, able to make it sufficiently rigid to bear the weight of another person on his middle, only supported by his head and feet. Um, he could have a 150-pound rock on his abdomen smashed with a sledgehammer and not feel it. Yeah. And he could also be buried in an airtight coffin for several hours without ill effects. Hmm. So, but of particular interest to the Sinclairs was his ability in a trance to receive telepathic messages. And he would carry out instructions silently willed by a person nearby. So, like, one of his parlor tricks was... He would be in a room with a bunch of people and he would pick out a person and that person would silently think about like an object in the room and will him to like, okay, I'm looking around the room. Uh, okay. What do I see in the room? I see a wig. So I would will him with my mind to, you know, go take the wig and put it on his head and then put it back. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm not saying this out loud. And then he would go and do the thing. And that was one of the things that he was known for. Okay. Um, that's, that's, that's an interesting trick. 
It is, isn't it's it? It's like if you were if you were because uh, I was just really like this is also like the era of like Houdini and like a lot yeah. of that like the stage magic shit, the, mm-hmm. the, the the parlor tricks and shit. Right. He was very much like a stage magician, but then he was also he purported to be like an occult yeah, type yeah, person. Yeah. So the Sinc- the Sinclairs were very interested in sort of like learning from him because now Mary's starting to come around. She wants to start developing her her gifts a little bit. Honing her powers. Yeah. And they're like, hmm, we think Jan's a good option. Hmm. And I think that Mary, she liked his mustache. She yeah. liked his, his glistening, hairy, oily chest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes Jan would be open and frank with them, and then he would get all mysterious and secretive. Like, he would agree to teach them all of his secrets and all that he knew. And then he would say, oh, wait, first I have to go to India and get these certain things in order for us to begin. Oh, I'll just be right back. I just got to go to India real quick. Yeah. So he would be like kind of shifty. He's going he sounds back a bit shady. Forth. Yeah. He was also known for like having stage fright. Sometimes he <laughs> could perform and sometimes he couldn't like... You know, um, he was also known for like levitating things. He could levitate tables and. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, But sometimes he couldn't do it because he was like too nervous or something or the energy was wrong. I mean, if if there's like a song I'm trying to play and I'm like not good at it, good at it yet, like I might not be able to perform it. Yeah, right. So he's not good at the trick Yeah, he's just like not not a great magician. Mary agreed to let Jan hypnotize her. I'm sure she did. Yeah, but secretly with the objective that she was going to hypnotize him. See, she had been observing him for a while and his tricks, and she was like, I'm going to try to to play his own tricks at him. And she did it successfully too. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, And they started to have like such a strong telepathic connection that she started to be able to tell him what he was thinking, what he had been doing that day, where he had been, Mm. you know, sort of like, you know, she would predict like, oh, he's getting flowers right now. And then he would send a postcard with a couple of flowers on it to her. Sometimes Upton would hear them arguing in the next room (laughs) over, quote, uh, he wouldn't reveal his secrets to her. (laughs) (laughs) Give me your secrets. Yeah. (laughs) Give me your secrets, Um, you Polish woman. And she would like, she would get these headaches and this like pain in her neck. And he would do mesmerism on her where he would put his electric fingers on her, on her body and like start to slowly like stroke just his fingertips and send energy into her. And he would, he would do that. And they had this like strong connection. (laughs) What was Upton doing at the time? Just in the other room listening, the I guess. Paperless. Yeah, he's probably on his typewriter. He's like, well, I'm glad she has a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so one night Sinclair was going to conduct a seance. He invited Einstein to it. Did he, he show up? Yeah. Okay. Einstein was a fan of Sinclair. Yeah. Uh, he invited Richard Tolman, the soon-to-be chief scientific advisor to the Manhattan Project, and Paul Epstein, Caltech's professor of theoretical physics. And he really, like, built up the seance, inviting Jan, of course, to be the main event. We right. know that Jan has stage fright. How do we think he's going to do in front of Einstein and all these important mm, people? Probably fucking terrible. Yeah, so Sinclair really builds up the crowd. And they say, <laughs> now, do not panic. 
Jan is amazing. (laughs) He levitated a table during our last seance. So Jan goes into his trance and he's mumbling and and then nothing happens. Total total fail. Total fucking fail. Yeah. So meanwhile, as this like weird relationship is happening with... Mary and Jan, I guess. Um, <laughs> Definitely getting weird. I don't really know how it ends either. It's just like there, and then I don't know what happens to it. No shit. I, <laughs> I don't know. Often just they, stopped writing about it. Yeah. It's like goddamn. So meanwhile, Mary's finding that her dreams, sometimes even her waking thoughts, were starting to be influenced by what her husband was thinking. So she started to write down these things before confirming it with him. I imagine that she just had a whole journal of like <laughs> what she thinks that her husband is thinking (laughs) can you imagine all of the potential stupid arguments that could take place like honey i read your mind and i know (laughs) (laughs) that'd be fucking terrible like shit i knew what you were thinking about that waitress (laughs) um (laughs) so she would write these down and then, like, confirm it with him. On one occasion, she, like, she felt inspired to write a story. So she wrote, like, this whole story and then discovered that it was actually the synopsis of a chapter of a book that Upton had just brought home but had not yet opened. She also, she started to do this thing where she could predict what the book covers would look like of books that were sent to Upton because he would receive a lot of books in the mail from fans. So she started to like... Like remote view the... Yeah. So she would be like, oh, it's blue with a bare landscape and a rising sun. Right. And then a book would arrive like with a cover like that. Okay. I mean, I don't know. That's something, I guess. They would also do this thing where... Let me go to the chapter, actually, because it's kind of difficult to explain. They did a few weird things. Yeah, yeah. How often was she? Does she say she was right about the like book covers and stuff? Fairly often. Okay. Oh, this is funny. Um, one time she had a vision of Jan preparing to commit suicide. Oh no, Jan, <laughs> yeah. no! And she saw him like lying dead, and she was all scared, and and then she was like, "Oh wait, oh yeah, he does that thing where he gets buried alive." <laughs> so he was fine, yeah. but she was she was worried for nothing. But I thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, my Polish magic man! Yes, but she saw like the pajamas that he was wearing when he got buried at an actual event. Those just weren't just his like burial burial PJs. Or she knew what his pajamas looked like because she's a dirty little minx. <laughs> yeah, seen that's him right. In yeah, his bed clothes. She knows. She, those, she bought knows. him those pajamas. Yeah, exactly. She knew exactly which pajamas. Red footy pajamas. <laughs> With a hood zipped up almost all the way, and the Polish chest hair is poking oh, yes. out over the top. Okay, so this is where I start to get a little bit lost. Okay. Okay. So set the scene. You got Mary. You got Upton. And they're in the room, and he's like, hey, I just made some lunch. Do you want to come join me? And she's like, no, I'm writing a story right now, which was pretty common. So he goes, and he eats his lunch alone, and then he comes back in, and she's still writing. And then she's like, oh, I have this idea for a story. Something flashed into my mind. It's absolutely novel. I've never heard anything like it. I have a whole synopsis. Do you want to hear it? And he says, no. And also, you should go eat something. Uh, (laughs) And she says, I can't eat now. I'm too excited. This is why you fucking get headaches, Mary. Okay? 
You, got, you just want an something. excuse for Jan to rub your little shoulders. Um, she says, <laughs> I'll, I'll read a while and get quiet. So she goes to her couch. I love that she has her own couch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there is, there's a minute of tour silence. And then she's like, oh, my God, come here. And she, like, picks up this book and she goes, look at this. Look the, at the page I opened to. And in the middle of the book, in capital letters, are the words, the Black Magician. Dun, dun. At least it's not the Gray Magician. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, <laughs> Wait. So. Is, is Jan? Are we dealing with a time traveler here? <laughs> I don't know. Are we dealing with an immortal? Yeah, right? <laughs> so Upton's like, okay, yeah, Black Magician, what about it? And she goes, did you ever hear of that idea? Like, yeah, it's his book. And and he's like, yeah, I've heard of it. And she goes, well, I never did. (laughs) I thought it was my own. And it's the theme of the story that I've been writing. I've made a synopsis of a whole chapter in this book without ever having touched it. So she's like, she picks up this book and she's like, oh my God, I came up with this. Is it uh, like... (laughs) Is it just about a black mag- like a black guy who does magic? I, it must be because the books are from South Africa and um, they were sent to Upton from a clergyman in South Africa about his wife's life, the clergyman's wife. Yeah. So it must be, yeah, about... When, shit, because it could be about both. It could be about like dark sorcery or it could right. just be about a black magician. I don't know, but she was like, oh my God, I... I wrote this book. Um, I mean, like, I, you have you ever seen a movie where you're like, oh shit, I came up with this idea. I thought, yeah. and then you're like, oh, this is this movie's like my idea, but yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. like not really, but kind of. Yeah, I feel like that's what we're that, dealing with here. That's probably it. Yeah. So let's see. I wrote this. I know, really. So you just get drunk and read it like the night before. I forget about it. I think this was, so they had been doing a bunch of experiments, right? Yeah. Her and Sinclair. And, well, I guess she's Sinclair too. She's Miss Sinclair. (laughs) But, so Mary and Upton were doing these experiments. And now that she has this book stuff, I think Upton's like, yes, I don't have to do this with her. She can do it by herself. She can sit at the bookshelf all night pulling out random books (laughs) and opening up pages and seeing if they have significance to her, which is exactly (laughs) what she did. Oh, no. Oh, (laughs) no. Thankfully, and Upton had like a, a beautiful, large variety of books from donors all over the world. So, yeah, she would sit there and she would do this. Yeah, like one time... She she wrote down one big eye with nothing else distinct. Lines or spikes came around it. Those project from the head like stiff long hairs, eyelashes, maybe. Can't tell what kind of head, but feel like it must be tropical something. The eye looks human. Very confusing set of sentences there, Mary. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's she's sitting by the bookshelf and this is what she writes down. And then she, you know, pull a book and the book is Mr. Bletsworthy on Rampole Island by H.G. Wells. And in this book, there's a chapter titled The Friendly Eye. 
Friendly eye. Yes, in which there's the following sentences. I became aware that an eye observed me continually, a reddish-brown eye. It looked out from a system of bandages that projected a huge shock of brown hair upward and a great chestnut beard. The eye watched me from the illuminating but expressionless detachment of a headlamp. Polyphemus, for that was my private name for the man. Um... So she, like, sees this giant eye, and then she opens up to this page, which describes kind of like like an eye with hairs around it. What the fuck was that? What the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that one's, you know, interesting. Yeah. Um, if she's never read that book before and doesn't know the contents What's of it. What's the name it, of that book? Mr. Bletsworthy on Rampole Island. What I the fuck guess, is that? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> <laughs> Truly, what is this eye thing? Who, who is Mr. Bletsworthy? You know, there's so much in this that <laughs> there's certain stuff that I, like, don't have time to open up, but I, I would know. love to know. We need to, like... I need to like take your notes and like come up with another document of like all the all the every random noun shit. that's in in your notes because um, I think we've got like five years worth of episodes just, just based on following stuff the Upton Sinclair weird early twentieth century American rabbit hole. Wow. Mr. Bletsworthy on Rampole Island. The actual title is fucking long as fuck. Oh my god, this is the original title. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Mr. Bletsworthy on Rampole Island, being the story of a gentleman of culture and refinement who suffered shipwreck and saw no human beings other than cruel and savage cannibals for several years, how he beheld Megatheria alive and made some (laughs) notes of their habits, how he became a sacred lunatic, how he did at last escape in a strange manner from the horror and barbarities of Rampole Island in time to fight the Great War, and how afterwards he came near returning to that island forever. With much amusing and edifying manner concerning manners, customs, beliefs, warfare, crime, and a storm at sea, concluding with some reflections upon life in general and upon these present times in particular. So you don't need to ask what it's about. There you go. (laughs) That's the fucking original title. What the fuck? I can't imagine why they changed it. I love it. That's that's fantastic. He also wrote a book called The Bulpington of Bloop. (laughs) Um, Who who is this guy? H.G. Wells. I know. Who is this guy? Fucking Bulpington of Bloop. You got Mr. Bletsworthy and the Bulpington and the Craig Kimbrough. And they're all there (laughs) together. They're all on their island together. Go read some more H.G. Wells. So she starts doing these book experiments, right? Yeah. And... She also starts doing these distance telepathy experiments with her brother-in-law, Bob Irwin. Their homes were about 40 miles apart, and Bob had nothing but spare time on his hands as he was waiting to die from tuberculosis. <laughs> I, like, that's not the way I'm putting it, but that's how Upton puts it, like, in the book. Okay. He, like, which is weird. <laughs> Jesus Christ. He's like, don't worry. He's like, he was entertained by it. He had nothing better to do. Which, you know, funny you say that, Upton, because in the next chapter, he's like, Bob stopped. He was getting bored. So (laughs) at an agreed time each day, um, Bob would make a drawing and then sit and concentrate on it while Mary would order her subconscious mind to perceive the image. And um, their little experiment succeeded at the first attempt. So what they would do is they would time and date, like, the pictures. And then the next time they got together, they would take out their little pictures and compare them. And what he drew was a fork. And that's also what she drew. Hmm. 
So we actually, we tried that little experiment, the, yeah. di- the distance telepathy experiment. Yeah. Do, we, do you want to compare pictures now? Sure. You never told me any figures. I didn't, but I didn't think it matters because neither, like, did they at first. Okay. I figured, like, yeah. we're doing it a little now, as, sloppy at first. As soon as you, uh, as soon as you asked me if I wanted to do a psychic experiment, I was like, yeah. And then I like sat down to, to do it. And then the dogs just started barking immediately. Yeah. Just, and just constantly. Well, we'll see if the results of this are differ from doing it more up close. I was a little distracted. So if it doesn't work, you know. Blame, yeah. That's your excuse. Blame the dog. All right. So let's see. I want to take a look at your pictures or maybe I'll show them to you and you just see if you have one that looks like it. All right. All right, so I w- I'm going to present them to you. I'm going to present them to you one Okay. All right, so once again, blame the dog. All right. Now, I also, like, I, I wrote, like, notes in him. Okay. Okay, so you uh, you asked me to... To pair up your images with the four that I... Yeah, 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 but uh, as, like, the thing, like, I at first I thought that I didn't know it was, like, four distinct images. Like, I didn't know, and I wrote down, like, a whole bunch of, like sentences and descriptors and shit like that. Yeah, right? it was so, like, off the cuff. And yeah, last yeah. Because I well, figured, like, while I was waiting for you, let's try to do some distance telepathy. So the thing is that I forgot the notebook that I drew all the shit. And, yeah. Right? Because <laughs> of course you did. Because of course I fucking did. Yeah. I walked the dog. I had to get all the stuff. I got to bring all the stuff. I got to set up this. I forgot a notebook. What are you going to do? What, you gonna- what can you do? But the point is that, like, I, I redrew the four images without seeing them, but I think it would have been interesting to have the notes that yeah that I had yeah true know? the impressions uh, so like you're not gonna be able, like I can I remember them but without the actual documentation what does it matter yeah. I'll still say them so take it all with a grain of salt <laughs> so the first one. Right. So the first image that I drew um, was just like a kitchen ladle. Yeah, did did you ha- make anything close to that? Sort of. Now, I had the impression, I wanted to show you this one first. And it's a picture you a doodly did of a dude's face. Okay, is it the mustache glasses man? Yes. Yeah, I made a little picture of a man wearing glasses and he has a mustache and a green bow tie and now, a center part. I'm going to show you a, a doodle I made. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing. However, but- I think you might see the similarities. Yes. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, in mental radio, a lot of the matches are like partial matches because they may not be of the same object, but they do have the same shapes and, and the same sort of like structure. So you drew, it's like a pot Yeah, it's a pot. with it's just- um, two handles on the side and then on the inside of the pot, you colored it in. But what I see is almost like a head with hair on top and two ears on either yeah, side. Yeah, and the man, the face you drew... He's got a he's got a pothead. Yes, his head is very much <laughs> shaped similarly to so this right, pot. He's a, a blockhead. Yeah, and the hairs and the ears look just like the handles. R- yes, right. Which is funny because I was actually I made this drawing without ears at first, and then I stared at it and I was like, something not right, something not right. Ah, oh, I yeah. need to draw these little ears. Okay, so now so that I what's what's I can interesting see that. is you drew a ladle, right? Mm-hmm. In my notes, I had written down metal uh like tool like i think i wrote down but like metal was an impression yeah. i kept getting and so i thought and like then i drew a metal you know cook pot uh-huh. right 
Yeah. But for the one that I've got matched with the ladle, this it, it looks like shit because I can't draw, but it's a wave, an ocean wave. Okay, yeah. Has a similar... Similar, similar shape. shape. Similar curve. Mm-hmm. Yes. Two curving objects. Now, you drew a cho- the finest European chocolates for Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's like a little heart box of chocolates with a little curly, like, frilly frame around it. Yeah. I drew a flower, and I started with the uh, petals around the outside. Oh, yeah. So, like, the petals on the outside kind of look like the little frilly thing that I did around the heart. Yeah. So, like that's... A, part. That's what I'd say. I wouldn't count it as a... As a match, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, You've yeah. got the basic, like, shapes. Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Um, and then you drew a twister board? I did. I drew a drill. Okay. It twists. It twists. <laughs> it fucking does, though. It does. It's a twister. <laughs> That's... Honestly, yeah, it does. So, and four also, out of four. I will say that flowers are something that you also get your significant other in addition to chocolates on Valentine's Hell Day. Yeah. Hell so yeah, thematically, yeah. like we're kind, we're kind of there. I'm, I'm saying four out of four. Okay, I think it, I'll say three out of four, and that's generous. I'll say forty bucks an hour for uh, my psychic powers. <laughs> All right. (laughs) You can hire me. Okay. So Bob got bored of doing this. How could you get bored? I know. (laughs) So now Mary's like, Upton, I'm going to help me. So they would sit in silence in separate rooms with a closed door between them, 30 feet apart, roughly, while Upton would make drawings of any object that occurred to him. Uh, Sometimes the drawings were made by Upton's secretary because he was like, fuck this, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to do this anymore. I'm a journalist. Yeah, I'm busy. Um, Initially, drawings were placed in batches of sealed envelopes and laid on a table in Craig's absence. I'm saying Craig, that's Mary. (laughs) (laughs) She's just Craig now. (laughs) They're into some freaky shit. (laughs) Sometimes she's Mary, sometimes she's Craig. It depends what Upton's mood is that day. Um, (laughs) Is he just Jan sometimes? (laughs) Is that a costume? Yeah, right? There's pictures of Jan and oh boy. Oh, really? Um, um, yeah, so <laughs> he would lay these in Craig's absence, in Mary's absence, <laughs> and then Craig would enter the room. And like, I don't know why I did this in my notes. I, I, changed, I changed her to Craig like halfway through my notes. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Mary Craig Kramer. Okay. I don't know. She's too many different people. Uh, she has too many names. It's confusing. Yeah, what's up with that? So Mary enter, would enter the room. She would lay on the couch. She would enter a meditative state. And when she felt ready, she would reach for the envelope that Upton had put on the table. She would hold it in her hand above her solar plexus and like meditate and wait for an image to form in her mind. And when that image would form, she would sit up and write it down. And then she would call out, I'm I'm done. And then Upton would come and put the next envelope. Eventually they realized like this is not an efficient way to do this. So they would just like lay out the papers on a table and he would sit or someone would sit in there to watch her and make sure she wasn't being bad. And she wasn't peeking. Can't peek. Yeah. No peeking, Craig. Um, 
(laughs) (laughs) And she would, you know, rub it on her solar plexus, which is in like your tummy. Yeah, it's like right above your tummy. Yeah. And get the wind knocked out of you. So throughout Mental Radio, we see these 290 doodles that ultimately like Upton and their friends would make because Upton would get sick of it and be like, can you, <laughs> can you entertain yeah. Mary for a little bit? Can you, <laughs> can you just make some doodles and. I like it that he just calls his book Mental Radio. Yeah. It's just like such a shitty throwaway title. I don't so know. we have another set of images as well. This one we did in the room together, like Upton yeah. and Mary would do. Do you want to compare them now? Sure. Yeah. All right. So figure one, this time we labeled them specifically and paired them up like one by one. The first one that I have, I'll let you look at it. It's a kiwi. Okay. It's like a a kiwi sort of sliced in half. I had ball of string, spaghetti, faded brown, orange rope, and the picture, well, that's what I wrote down, and then the the thing I drew, I doodled, was like a ball of string. Hmm. Now, I would make a case for the faded brown. The faded brown, yes. Being the uh, skin of the kiwi. Mm-hmm. And then the ball of string is the kiwi seeds and the stripes. Yeah, the, the, the seeds. The fractal looking Yeah, thing. the seeds on the inside I made rather like frenetic looking. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a bunch of scribbles. Yeah. Okay. Also, round. A round it shape. It is round and there is brown. It's round and brown. Brown. Brown and brown. brown. All right. Is that a okay. pass? Um, it's something. God damn it. <laughs> okay. Figure two. It's a rubber ducky. Uh, I had tri- like, okay, I drew this. Okay. So for some fucking reason, I, the last thing I drew on this one was a paddle, like a canoe paddle. Mm-hmm. The first thing I drew was these two like triangles making like a mouth shape. Oh, so kind of like the beak? Yeah. Maybe. Check it out. And I wrote down triangle wet. And then blue. There's no blue on there. It is kind of a it's wet, a wet triangle because it is. It's a rubber ducky and blue because it goes in water. Yeah, it goes in I the was bathtub. Thinking, I was thinking. I was thinking water, but I did draw its mouth. Yeah. Okay. That's but something. That's pretty. Pretty much. That's. That's, that's, that's something. Enough. Okay. Figure three. Yep. Weird clown face. Weird cat face. What nice. Up? So they're both a face. Yep. Oh, and the cat even has like a big weird nose. Yeah. Okay. And it has the triangle ears and I drew triangles above the clown's eyes. I'm fucking crushing this. So this one's not too bad. $60 an hour now. My fee just went up. Okay. All right. Yeah, because this clown kind of has almost like cat-like eyes. Yeah. They're a little, I made him have weird eyes. The line, like I drew the cat eyes, the lines. Yeah. And I'll be posting these all on our Instagram. Yeah. And figure four is like a pair of um, like sexy legs up in the air. Complete miss. I drew a tree in a house. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's just a fail. <laughs> barn question barn. mark. This woman in my drawing resents that you would call her a barn. Um she's also dry. God. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Wow. How fun. Seven out of eight. Okay. Yeah. Seven out generous. of eight. Um Come on. <laughs> Okay, so... (laughs) What did I get wrong? Let's litigate this. (laughs) No. So these experiments, they're not produced in a controlled scientific environment, neither are Sinclair's, but 
Interestingly, people in the scientific and skeptic community enjoyed the book Mental Radio. In fact, Albert Einstein wrote the, what do you call it, the preface for the German edition of the book. And the uh, often skeptical psychical researcher, William McDougall... Oh, McDougal. McDougal, yeah, he's in he's in the story. He's a what a piece of work, McDougal. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't actually know. I don't know. I don't know who McDougal. You don't know who McDougal is. I don't know is. who McDougal is. Oh, I know he's baby. a piece of work though. He's um he's done a lot of stuff. He could be an episode all all to himself. He's like Hard. a researcher of psychic phenomenon in a time when it was not a lot of people were doing that. He helped sort of like found um, parapsychology labs at different universities and worked for Harvard studying like ESP and shit. No shit. Yeah. Okay. Which I wish I was kind of around during this time when they were studying psychic stuff in colleges. They still are, Academically, yeah. That episode that uh, ended up on the cutting room floor, uh, one of our first like test episodes we did about uh, remote viewing and shit. That was like, I used a paper from Mm -hmm. uh, a a University of Colorado, I think, that was written in like 2013 Mm -hmm. about remote viewing and shit. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So I know you do. I was explaining to the audience. <laughs> I didn't forget. Don't worry. All right. So on March 18th, 1935, Upton Sinclair received a letter from J.B. Rhine, founder of the parapsychology lab at Duke University. Okay. Um, in conjunction with William. Yes. <coughs> <laughs> That's how you pronounce his name. What? That's how you pronounce his name. (laughs) (laughs) That's his last name. No, um, William McDougall. (laughs) 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 Okay. J.B. Ryan was the founder of the parapsychology lab at Duke University in conjunction with William McDougall. Okay. Um, I just had to like cough and clear my throat when I gotcha, said his name. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, Ryan was a botanist and psychologist who helped found the now largely discredited branch of science known as parapsychology, a discipline concerned with the investigating paranormal and psychic phenomenon. He was one of the scientists who published articles against the famous Boston medium, Mina Crandon, known as Marjorie. These skeptical revelations led Arthur Conan Doyle, a fervent believer in spiritualist phenomenon, to publish an article in Boston newspaper titled, J.B. Ryan is an Ass. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yes. But despite his early attempts to debunk paranormal phenomenon, Ryan himself became quite caught up in his own beliefs in psychic phenomenon. Hmm. Particularly... ESP, extrasensory perception, a term which he coined. Oh, no shit. Yes. Um, He also coined the term psychokinetic. So while ESP is extrasensory, he also believed that there's uh, extra motor events. That you can make stuff move around. Yeah, or like that you affect matter like, you know, when you're stressed out, uh, like a clock will fall off the wall and you'll be like, God damn it, why right now? Like that type of stuff. 
Yeah. Like a bubble of chaos, shaking stuff. Yeah, that's how he explained it. In 1934, Ryan would publish a book on the subject based on research using Duke University students. That book would make him somewhat of a celebrity. He would receive letters from all over the world asking him to investigate their paranormal experiences. So, like, Ryan and McDougal are two pretty interesting guys that we could cover at some point. Yeah, definitely. I'd like to helped introduce this topic into academia and really start doing research on it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the their research was supported by institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> individuals such as Alfred P. Sloan, CEO of General Motors. Um, and during the mid-20th century, it genuinely appeared as though parapsychology was on its way to becoming a real scientific discipline. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've always found interesting is that, like, there are a lot of, like, visions of the future that include psychic phenomenon as a, like, discovered thing. Yeah. In, like, the not so, like, I want to say, like, there's no way to actually pull out a number of this, but let's let's just pull out one completely, completely out of my ass, which is, like, like half of all the sci-fi universes I can think of have sci phenomenon. Like, it's, like, not just, like, a... Yeah, some sort of, like... I don't want to say magic power, but right. some sort of like sixth sense. Yeah, or like psychic soldiers or something. Like mm-hmm. it seems like that's a thing that a lot of people could could be like, hey, maybe it, maybe it could be real in the future. Maybe we'll yeah. discover it in the future. I don't know. So one of Ryan's tools in these ESP experiments that they were doing was a set of cards designed by his colleague Carl. Either Zener or Zenner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how it's yeah. pronounced. Uh, Zenner, probably. Zenner. Yeah. So you've probably seen these cards before. They have a series of five different symbols on them. Either you got a circle, plus sign, three wavy lines, square, and a star. You'll probably recognize them from the scene in Ghostbusters. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. Bill Murray and Ghostbusters in the first Precisely. scene. I have, uh, I have an app on my phone that has like the... That does those cards. Yeah, I actually ran the test on my computer yesterday on some website that lets you do it. And um, I was pretty bad at it until I started doing it without even looking at my computer screen and just clicking randomly. And then I was doing really well. Hmm. Yeah. Consistently or just like one time? Like uh, three times in a row. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So he sent um, some of these cards to Upton Sinclair, Ryan did. He sent him a bunch of Zenner cards and said, hey, test these on your wife. (laughs) And according to Sinclair, of course, you know, she got all of the correct answers. Oh, of course. Yep. Even without looking at the cards, like, face down or touching them or anything. He didn't even... Yeah, nothing. She, She just knew. And Ryan himself found that he was pretty good at it too, but only when no one else was around. A likely story. Yeah. Only he himself could achieve statistically significant indications of success at extrasensory card guessing. <laughs> hmm. I mean, but that's the thing. Anybody who's like looked at that shit will tell you that it kind of works that way. Yeah. That like the... It kind of does. As soon as someone's watching, you you know. Yeah, too many, because they're... Because they're affecting it, too. Yeah, their mirror neurons are fucking with you. Yeah. So of um, Sinclair's, the Sinclair's experiments with these drawings and whatnot. Upton and and Craig. Yeah, Upton and Craig. (laughs) uh, They're 290 drawings. Upton would judge 23% to be successful matches. Okay. 
50% partial successes and 24% failures. So for the most part, partial successes. And some examples of partial successes were like Upton would draw, he drew a telephone, but it was like an old timey telephone. So it's like the little cup that you put up to your ear and then. Yeah. Yeah. So what she drew was like one cone on the bottom facing up and another cone coming down from the top. So like two cones almost, which is kind of like what a telephone has. It's like two cones that are, that you need. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Oh, podcast. Podcast distracted me. (laughs) (laughs) Another partial match was like he drew a crab with like claws and she drew sort of like, I don't know. They they look almost like fingers kind of. Okay. And she wrote down like wings question mark, fingers question mark, sort of like. Claws. Yeah, claws. And they counted that as a partial match. I don't know. That's a bit of a stretch. Then I'm definitely seven out of eight. Yeah. My flower um, in the box of chocolate's way better than any of that nonsense. I also discovered in this book that she thinks that lobsters are reptiles. But that's just wrong. I know. Like very he like wrong. makes fun of her for it in the <laughs> book. He's like, listen, I never claimed that she was smart. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Craig. So, so yeah, that's uh, mental radio. Huh. That's all that we're going to talk about anyway. You can go read it. There's more. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, There's a lot more that I didn't talk about. Maybe we'll maybe we'll cover the back half on some other episode. Yeah, because there's more to uh, Upton Sinclair's nonsense hour. Yeah, because, I mean, it's interesting because, like, what, what year was this published in? 1930. Okay. So that's, like, that's like right when Neville Goddard was, was – uh, Doing his shit. Yeah, the spiritualist right? movement was yeah. like booming in the Yeah, time. it's like it's that it's that whole time. I don't know. It's just like a, a wild time, like Einstein, Albert Einstein at a seance. Yeah, right. And just like everybody obsessed with like psychic powers and like I table know. tipping and shit like that. It's fucking wild. So much fun too. Yeah, it sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. Long before Upton and Craig met and fell in love <laughs> over Sylvia, their boring fucking novel about Mary's life, which I should actually read because it might be interesting. We learned in the book um, in Mental Radio that she's scared of fires because of some horrific and what seems like racist uh, stuff from her hometown. Okay. About how, like, a disgruntled servant had set her babies on fire what? In, a, in a bin full of feathers. And I'm like, that sounds like it didn't happen. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, is don't, this Craig? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So now Craig is scared of fires because of that. <laughs> um, I'm like, did you see it? Because I don't think that that happened. But before that, long before that. He was married to a woman named Meta who was just plain bad for him. Just plain bad. Yeah. Uh, they were bad for each other, you know? Two two young bucks just trying to make it in this world and do the best they can and seek independence from their families and they're they're just going too fast and too hot. <laughs> they don't know that there's there's more to life the far off look in your eyes yeah. <laughs> you're saying this. and you know they're trying to be abstinent but he just can't he can't help himself because help. meta she knows how to rope him in he knew that she was bad mm. he couldn't help himself 
So she gets pregnant with their baby boy, David. Uh, she doesn't want to be pregnant. She tries to get rid of tries David. To not be pregnant. Terminate David. Uh, terminate the child. <laughs> <laughs> and she's not successful. And Upton is like, fuck. David refuses to die. Yeah. So you know what they got to do? They got to start a commune so that other people can raise this kid for them. Yeah. Which is exactly what he does. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) they buy this school in Englewood, New Jersey, which is pretty close to New York City. And it was this luxurious school for boys occupying nine and a half acres, building three stories with a glass enclosed central court filled with tropical plants, an elaborate flowing fountain. You know, everybody who saw this building was like, oh, my God, it's beautiful. There's pictures Mm. of it. It's beautiful. In the Great Hall, there was a a vast fireplace open on all four sides and across from it, a large pipe organ. That was kind of like the gathering place. Yeah, yeah. There is an indoor swimming pool, a bowling alley, billiard room, tennis court. Shit. 35 upstairs bedrooms arranged around the plush central court. And there was a rule there. If I if you're in your bedroom, the doors close, don't fucking knock for anything, okay? Don't ever disturb anyone in their room, ever for any reason unless it's prearranged. Wait a minute. This seems like it could go very wrong. I think that that's a great rule for a bunch of, like, you know, artists and intellectuals living together. Yeah, but, like, what if you suspect someone's died in there? Oh, well, then you open it. Okay. But otherwise, like... I think it's good to have a rule. No one can just come and knock on my door because they just want to chit-chat, you know? If you're in there writing and trying yeah. to do something and you don't want to be interrupted, like, you're assured. No interruptions. So that would be pretty nice. Yeah. So the people that joined this commune, and he, he bought it with his money from the jungle, by the way. It was like, you know, you got socialists there, you got anarchists, you got feminists, vegetarians, spiritualists, you you got every like branch of intellectualism of the time. And Jan. And Jan was not there. Okay. No. This is long before Jan. Before Who knows what the fuck was Jan doing in nineteen oh six? This is nineteen oh six? Yeah. Okay. Hashtag where was Jan? (laughs) What was he doing before he was Nostradamus and like burying himself in six feet underground? Playing with bunnies. Learning how to hypnotize them. So people would come to Helicon Hall for a variety of reasons. By the way, Helicon Hall, like interesting name. Yeah. What is a Helicon? I looked it up, but what do you know? Uh, like maybe like, like. You're from like Helio, yeah. Like yeah, that would be like my guess. Sun. That would be my guess. Yeah. Well, Helio, yeah, heliocentric is like the the word heliocentric <laughs> means like everything warps the sun, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Helicon, there's a Mount Helicon in Greece, which is also oh, okay. in Greek mythology. And at the bottom of Mount Helicon, there's these two sacred springs, and one of them is the Aganapi. Aganapi. Aganipi, Aganipe, Aganipi. I don't know. Fuck. Aganipi. God damn it. Aganipi. It sounds like Aganipi. How's it spelled? How's it spelled? A-G-A-N-I-P-P-E. P-P-E? P-P-E. I don't know. Aganipa? Aganipa? I don't know. Fucking Jesus Christ. (laughs) We're spending too long. Yeah, yeah. I would have figured out how to say Greek. So the first of the springs is Aganipi. (laughs) In addition... 
to being the name of a Greek water nymph for whom the spring is associated with, Agunapi, I'm just going to say it like that because it's funny, (laughs) um, was an aspect of the goddess Demeter and translates to the mare who destroys mercifully. Mm. Yes. So in the form of Agunapi, uh, Demeter is a black-winged, I see the way you're looking at me. No, I'm just, this this is funny. (laughs) <laughs> Demeter is a black-winged horse worshipped by certain cults, and different idols found of Agunapi portrayed her as a mare-headed woman with a, a mane entwined with gorgon snakes. Jesus. And um, this woman aspect— with a horse head? Yeah. A fucking A horse head with hair? snake hair. What the fuck? Um, and this aspect of her is also associated with the black horse Anion or Arion, whom Heracles rode, which then later inspired tales of Pegasus, which is interesting because the second spring at the bottom of Mount Helicon is Hippocrene. And Hippocrene was sacred to the muses and supposedly formed by the hooves of Pegasus. Pegasus, who was born from Medusa's blood, a gorgon. So it's mm. interesting that you see Pegasus and, um, like, Agonope. Agony, you can just say it. You can say I don't know how to say it. It's a gun. It's I gonna be. I gonna Aaron, be. Aaron, the nonsense bar, nonsense so like, bizarre universe. So to have this, these springs, one which is like the black horse that destroys mercifully, and yeah, one yeah. is like the white horse that's born out of like the gorgon's blood. Yeah, to yeah. have them like side by side, I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, but the waters of the spring are supposed to bring forth poetic inspiration when you drink them. Okay. So I think it's it's quite poetic that this place where a bunch of like poets and writers and intellectuals, yeah. you know, it's supposed to be a, a a commune that gives them. Yeah, I mean, I like artist communes now. Yeah. Yeah, it's like definitely not like a like it's it's like an artist commune, you know, where there's right. like it's a bunch of twenty somethings, thirty somethings living together making art and like. Yeah. So they know, come there and they're chores. they're thinking like <laughs> sharing chores. Yeah. <laughs> um. Or are they? Or are they? So, like I said, one of the reasons why Upton wanted this place was to help him parent his child. Just to literally raise his own. Yeah. Kid. So that he would have time to write and not deal with the little shit. Um, <laughs> So there were, I think, 14 kids there in total, and they kind of, they had, like, their whole own thing, like, their own little wing where all the kids would hang out together, like, away from the adults. Yeah, yeah. Like, get get away. And um, the moms would sort of cycle time spent watching over the kids, and they would get a deduction from their monthly fee based on, like, who takes, you know, duty... Yeah, yeah. Who takes duty? (laughs) (laughs) Who takes the duty of looking after the kids? Who takes the duty? Who took the fucking (laughs) duty? (laughs) 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 Okay. So Helicon Hall, they've got like all the kids and they're contained. And, you know, but then we have the issue of how's everybody going to eat? Food was an issue. Like, because... Different people would take on the duty God damn it. <laughs> of cooking the food. 
<laughs> um, so like one night you would have someone cook that's like a super health nut, like vegetarian, and you'd get like a lentil loaf and everything would be dry and terrible. <laughs> and then the next night, like you'd get a fucking awesome meal and you would like want to eat a whole bunch and, but there yeah, wouldn't yeah. be any leftovers that night because you know, everything's so good. Right. So this issue arises of like, um, there's no consistency in like what, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So nothing but lentil loaves from here on. So out. they hire servants. Yeah. You know, of course, at which point it's like, is this a, is this a commune or is it what is this here? Because yeah, they're all basically, doing? it's basically a glorified boarding house, nah. Yeah. It's you know, just, except with like cooler stuff. Yeah. And they're all like they're part of some special club because they're all. Because they're all artsy artists. Yeah. Creators. So. He didn't like to have um, too many servants, so no, he no. started to to hire like college students because you know they're they're a little bit more high class. Because of course, um, where's my oyve button? <laughs> At Helicon Hall, there was a vote that uh, there would be no blacks and no Jews permitted. <laughs> Oive indeed. <laughs> um, so of course, like the people there, they're too distinct. They don't want like servants around. They don't want like lower class people to live in right. the building with them. So what they're gonna do is they're gonna hire like college graduates or college dropouts, someone with a little bit more prestige who could afford schooling. Like yeah, yeah. they're gonna take them and be like, oh, come live at our place and and work for us, and you can live here. You know that sort yeah, of deal because yeah, yeah. that's better than. I don't know. It's probably also kind of cheaper. Yeah. So you just con some people into doing your yeah you know, being servants yeah. for you for free. Seriously. So that went on for six months, and the people that were there really enjoyed their time there. Actually, it was lovely. Yep. But then March sixteenth, nineteen oh seven, at four in the morning, <laughs> a fire of unknown origin swept oh, through shit. the Helicon home colony and destroyed the main building. One person, a carpenter's apprentice, died in the blaze, unable to flee because he was too drunk to heed the alarm. Oh, shit. He was sleeping too heavily. Oh. But everyone else escaped without serious injury. Oh, shit. Um, by the way, let's see. I think there was 60, 62 people in the building, by the way. All right. So to put a number on, like, how many people were at this place. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, in addition to the unfortunate death, the members lost all of their possessions, including valuable manuscripts representing months and even years of works in some cases. Damn. So, like, all those writers, you know. Yeah, yeah. The millionaire neighbors of Helicon Hall were previously pretty hostile towards the commune, but now they were displaying generosity and took in some of the bewildered survivors, clothing them as best they could. Um, oh, they're there, you poor, yes, you they're, poor devils. Yes, they're there. You, you can wear my fur while you wait for the fire. <laughs> but such consideration was not repeated a few days later when a coroner's jury made up of Englewood City fathers, including the mayor, publicly conducted an investigation into the cause of the fire and the loss of life, alleging... That they had done it on purpose for insurance money. Dun, dun, dun. Totally not true. Like, they loved it there. It was a success. It was doing it. Like, they really weren't having many problems. They ironed out most of the kinks. They were doing their thing. 
definitely wouldn't have done that. In fact, Upton thought that perhaps it was big oil or something trying to sabotage. Big oil effort. is burning yeah, down he said my that he had he had found sticks of dynamite around the property or something. What? Um. Yeah. I, I don't know. He's a writer. I think, I think he would. Yeah, writers need money. Yeah. <laughs> so American magazines generally concluded that the fire at Helicon Hall proved their conviction that cooperative living was impractical. Because, <laughs> <laughs> of course, the, the press was not easy on them. It's interesting that a lot of the press, the bad press towards them, accused them of being like a free love commune. Yeah, and yeah. of course there was like, there was love to be found there. There was certainly like engagements made and sex being had. But it wasn't, you know, they weren't having orgies all over the place. Yeah. However, Upton, he did try to introduce his wife Meta one time to someone else as <clears throat> one of his mistresses. Mm. Just to see how she would react, because he had started cheating on her, right? Yes. So he he broke this news to her by introducing her as, this is one of my mistresses. Oh. And she didn't like it. I'm sure she didn't. She didn't like it, so he he broke off the thing with the with the other one. Yeah. You dog, you. You dog, Upton. So, uh, yeah, the place burned down, and he tried to um, invest in a bunch of different other sort of colony commune things and none of them really lasted but there were efforts made and he he looked upon the whole thing with fondness hmm, i'm sure indeed he wrote he would write a letter 21 years later talking about what he learned from from the whole ordeal <laughs> the way he words things is really weird one of the problems we were on our way to solving was that of the children. Like, can you make it any more obvious, Upton? Like, dear Lord. He also, he says that his idea of this whole thing is spiritual hmm. at its core. And it's interesting that like, so he says that it's a spiritual thing because in, in his conception, there is no like caste system where one person is above the other and we're all equal and that should include class. But I'm like, okay, but not if you a Jew, not if nah, you're black. Not, not Jews or blacks. Like, Hell no. That's not super cool. It's not super cool. It's not super cool at all, Upton. Because he says, like, you know, my utopia is spiritual. It involves a renunciation of that blissful certainty which so many people cherish that they are greatly superior to other human beings and therefore entitled to command them and put them to work. Huh. So he's saying, like, in order to be part of a commune, you have to uh, stop thinking that you're superior to other people. But it's like... But we're going to get servants, not let Jews and blacks in? Yeah, right? I don't know. Upton. It doesn't really make sense. So he thought he thought he d was doing a really cool thing. Yeah. Yep. And then he ran for governor. How'd he do? He did really well. So like I said, he had never held office before anything. So the fact that like he won the primary was really cool. And he came up with this thing called the epic plan. The epic plan. It's fucking epic. Uh, <laughs> this is New Jersey. This is in California. Oh, okay. This is in Cali, oh, baby. Shit. End poverty in California. E-P-I-C, ah. e epic baby. So within a few months, uh, he had a weekly newspaper that was going for the, like, the epic, 
the epic plan. Yeah, yeah. He was gaining a lot of lot of success too. And by mid 1934, there were over 800 epic clubs around California. So like that's pretty significant. Yeah. He also he was running with this dude. I forget his name. I don't care enough to look it up. <laughs> because he's Upton Sinclair, and the other guy's last name was like Downs. Or something like that. They went by Uppy and Downy, which I thought was cute. That's kind of cute. Yeah. And yeah, so he won the Democratic primary by a landslide. And it seemed like he was set for victory against opponent and incumbent Frank Merriam in November. Or was he? Or was he? Well, Epic faced major opposition by the Republican Party and media figures. Opponents of Epic organized the most lavish and creative dirty tricks campaign ever seen, one that was to become a landmark in American politics, involving turning over a major campaign to outside advertising, publicity, media, and fundraising consultants for the first time. Mm. So, like, hiring outside people to, you know, help you spread your message. Notable among these opponents were the heads of the major movie studios in Hollywood, largely due to Sinclair's proposal to hand over idle movie movie studio lots to unemployed film workers to make movies of their own. Yeah, yeah. In reaction, studio heads threatened to move all of their film operations to Florida, and they started to deduct money from employees' paychecks in order to donate <laughs> to Frank Miriam's campaign, Sinclair's opponent. Holy shit. So, yeah. And, of course, in addition to Hollywood's distaste for Sinclair, two of the, Stinkler, <laughs> <laughs> two of the state's most influential media moguls, William Randolph Hearst, Hearst, Hearst. Hearst and Harry Chandler used their papers solely to cover Miriam's campaign and attack Sinclair. Hmm. So you got Louis B. Mayer and Irving the Boy Wonder Thalberg <laughs> at MGM. He's the Boy Wonder. <laughs> They're known to uh, back Republican candidates. After all, Louis was the former chair of the California Republican Party. Hmm. They both saw Epic as a threat to Sovietize California. Uh- so, um, Louis B. Pedophile, who should have never been around children, <laughs> and the boy Wonder, <laughs> set about to start making fake newsreels, hiring actors to portray both anti- and pro-Sinclair people, in addition to his opponents, Frank Miriam and What's-His-Name-Hate. I don't, I don't even know. Uh, and, oh man, I can't wait to show you some of the first political propaganda to be made in video format. Right on. And it might not be... Obvious to you that these are fake at first. Right. But I'm sure that as we go through, you will start to notice a pattern, a little bit of a pattern. And I'm sure that a few of these are authentic, too, because, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is like a man-on-the-street newsreel. Okay. And they, they really drive home the point that these are not actors. <laughs> they are definitely not actors. And if they seem weird at all... It's just because they're nervous. <laughs> <laughs> they're just nervous. Uh, 
Ladies and gentlemen, I yes. am the inquiring cameraman. All day I travel around California, the highways and the byways, the downtown districts, the residence districts, the factory districts, all districts. I stop people on the street. I pry into offices and shops and stores and restaurants. I knock on the doors of homes, all for the purpose of digging out voters of California to express their views for your edification. Remember, they're not actors, they're nervous. You'd be scared to death yourself the first time you face the camera and microphone. If they seem awkward, bear with them. I don't rehearse them, I'm impartial. I ask them questions only to help them express themselves more clearly. I thank you. Now for the votes. Votes from carpenters, housewives, jobless men, butchers, bakers, and candlestick makers. There's even a crooner hidden in the group, but you'll have to find him out for okay. yourself. All ready for the votes? What do we think about the inquiring cameraman? <laughs> yeah, the, do we trust him? No. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like he's got skeletons in his closet. I don't... He's not doing a great job of being authentic, I must say. He's really trying highways to sell Highways the it. highways. Stop, stop. Uh, bookers, bakers, and candlestick makers. <laughs> All the old timey pit, pit pat. Oh my god, me too. Patter. Okay, so. Would you mind telling us uh, who your favorite candidate is for governor? Sinclair. And uh, what is your principal reason for arriving at that? Well, it puts a different man with different principles and everything like that into office, see, and it gets away from the old line. Well, have you They're made about a, to make this man look this stupid, by the oh, way. Okay. Yes, uh, I've studied a little bit. Some of them are rather radical, but I think they'll be modified when he gets into office. I see. Well, now, listen. Do you really believe that he can uh, <clears throat> end poverty in California? Well, no, I don't think so, but... Uh, well, I don't know what to say <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah, so that's it. He's like, I'm, I'm voting for... Sinclair, and I don't really think he'll end in poverty. And yep, yeah, and then awkwardly trails off. Yeah, yeah. So then the second guy we see is for Miriam, and he's looking a little bit more well-to-do than the last guy. He's drinking from a jug of milk, so you know he's well-to-do. <laughs> he's drinking that yeah. mugu straight from the udder. <laughs> um, He's going to vote for Miriam, and we'll let him tell us why once he's done drinking milk. Now, Mr. Warwick, you made up your mind uh, who you're going to vote for next month, Governor? Yes, sir. Do you mind telling us who? I'm going to vote for Miriam because I want a job. I'm to drive all the capital out of the country. Who's going to pay us? And uh, you think, then, that uh, Miriam would be the safest for us all? Absolutely. There's no time to trade horses in the middle of the stream. Yep. Thank you very and much. And he's like eating work. a sandwich. He's on his lunch break. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm gonna. I don't. I want to keep my job. No time I, to change horses. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna keep my job. All right. So then we have uh, this old white lady who's gonna vote for Miriam. And um, so I saw this and I thought, okay, if this is in favor of Miriam, you shouldn't have an, like an annoying old lady talk about why she's in support of it. That's not going to get anyone yeah, on your side. Yeah, if yeah. anything, you're going to be like, oh, shut up. <laughs> old bag. Yeah, exactly. So let's let her give us her spiel. Would you mind telling us who you selected? Governor Miriam. And uh, your outstanding reason for having selected him. Well, I think it'll be a pity to put a man in as much of a theorist as uh, the other candidate, an untried person in the ways of government. You believe, then, that Mr. Merriam 
will keep the boat from rocking. I do. And is it safer for you and your family and all? Very much Very so. Much and then so. It, it immediately goes to like a toothless, older white man mm. who sounds kind of drunk. And he's like, yep, I'm voting for Sinclair. <laughs> I'm like, I Jesus see what Christ. you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what you're doing. So here's the, here's the toothless, drunk guy. Mr. Duncan, yes. would you mind uh, telling us how you intend to vote for governor next month? Aye, sure. I'm oh, going yeah, to vote time. for Upton St. Clair. I see. And I will tell it to the... And I'll tell it to the housetops. House like, uh, you'll scream it from the rooftop, sir? <laughs> I'll tell it to the housetops. <laughs> like, good luck with that. <laughs> okay. And now we have a, a guy who looks a little bit like Vincent Price. He's wearing like a tuxedo yeah, yeah. and he has a little mustache and he's literally like looking down and appears to be reading off a script about how Frank Miriam uh, is like great and how like Sinclair is going to involve us in dangerous experiments. Mm. I'm going to uh, vote for Frank Miriam for governor. Uh, for the reason that uh, he is for democracy rather than socialism. And uh, uh, he won't evolve us in any dangerous experiment. <laughs> and then it goes over to the side. And so that was Mr. Johnson in the tux with the, with the mustache. And now we get Mr. Duffy, who's like a really, he's like a tiny man. <laughs> and he's wearing an old school fedora and like a brown suit. And they are quite a sight to behold. Just look at them, Sequoia. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man. You got, you got Johnny and Duffy and they're hanging out. They're totally friends that hang out in real life. Anyway, I won't play it, but Mr. Duffy says that he's in the real estate business. He's trying to keep his job. He wants to make money and he's going with Miriam cause he's a safe choice and he's going to keep his job. Well, yeah. well, well golly. Yeah. The same shit. It's just, just the same shit. Yeah, and then we hear from a young man who says, "I have Sinclair in mind, but his plans are so far ahead of the times. I'm doubtful if it would be right to vote for him. So, gosh, <laughs> I don't know." Oh Jesus! And then after that, the most unexpected answer. Uh, would you mind telling us your choice, Mr. Hate? I see. Now, what uh, is your principal idea for? I think he has the best Mr. judgment. Hate. Mr. Hate. Best judgment of the three. Like, we haven't heard his haven't name heard even once. Yeah. Tell me more about his platform. <laughs> no, he's got the best judgment of the three. That's all. That's all you get. Okay. All right. And then, okay, we'll end off News Reel 1 because there's two that we're going to look at. So we see a woman. She's gardening in her front lawn. And um, she's going to tell us who she's voting for. Well, uh, what are the outstanding reasons for your selecting him? Oh, I've never been very excited about elections before, but Sinclair's attitude towards so many of our institutions that I consider sacred, I don't quite agree with mine. So I've decided to use all the influence I have to put... Governor yep. Merriman back in office. She's gonna put Thank Governor Merriman back in office. You know, she's she's never even she she's not a woman that really votes or cares much, but <laughs> now she does. Our she's got an institution. Yeah, they're being threatened. So there's like sort of this theme of we need Miriam to stay because we need to keep our jobs and blah blah blah. Yeah. And yeah, the ones I, I, I the heard ones all who, that shit. 
the ones who are voting for Sinclair, you got like the drunk guy who's yep. going to tell it to the housetops. Yeah, tell um, the housetops. And you got the first guy that's like, well, I don't think he's really going to end poverty. And mm. I don't know. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I haven't thought about it really. Yeah. So that's what you have for, yeah. for Newsreel 1. It hasn't changed at all. <laughs> and people were fooled by these. They're fooled by them now, too. Yeah. A lot of people were fooled by these. All right. So Newsreel 2. That was the end of number one. How do we think it went? The inquiring cameraman's gonna gonna let us know because because he's back. I think he's an asshole. He's back and he's better than ever. Take it away, cameraman. Here we are again, ladies and gentlemen, the inquiring cameraman, and we're going to give ourselves a little pat on the back. Our first issue seems to have aroused all California. We've had lots of comments and suggestions, and we found out that some of the politicians don't like our idea at all. They seem to want you to hear only what they have to say. But we still think you're interested in how the man on the street is actually going to vote. We let him say anything he wants. We encourage him to talk freely. And we're trying to be as nonpartisan as possible. Now for the voters. Now for the voters. So the first one that they show, and I'll describe more of these just so we can get through it quick. She's a young white woman. She's a first-time voter. She's going to vote for Miriam because she just graduated from school. She got herself a nice little job, and she'd like to keep it. These are like... Literally the words, I'd like to keep it. And then, um, so you know how I said... It's the same line. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's literally the same so, line. Yeah. You know how I said that, you know, if you want um, someone to support someone, you shouldn't have an annoying old lady yeah. deliver the line? Yeah, yeah. Well, they got the most annoying fucking old lady uh. to be in support of Sinclair. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> let's Let's hear it. Mrs. Ashley, will you tell us who you're going to vote for for governor, please? I'm going to vote for Upton Sinclair. Will you tell us a few of your reasons why? Well, in the first place, I think he is a splendid, conscientious, capable man. And has a program. He has a program that he can do something for the people. Like, here's something that they're doing. They're making the Sinclair supporters, like, not even... It's like they're not paying attention when they're writing the lines. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to tell it to the rooftops. A program that he can do something for the (laughs) people. Okay. Continue. Continue, ma'am. People that are in distress now. Oh, and then she does the annoying <laughs> fucking. I uh, I they did that on purpose. Uh, yeah, do here. I'll let her do it again. <laughs> that he can do something for the people that are in distress now. <clears throat> I uh, I was born and reared. Like what did you uh, just say, ma'am? I was born and reared. Democrat. Like you were born where? What? What? Okay, go on. But uh, years later, I became a Republican, and uh, then a Socialist. And uh, so, but when Mr. Sinclair declared himself candidate for governor of California, we went in to like uh, lady. She's all over the place. I was born in a red uh, Democrat, and then I became a Republican, and I was a Socialist. Like, okay, they're doing a good job because I'm getting pissed off by this lady. <laughs> and she, I know she's an actress. It's I know so cre- she, she's so creepy. She's good at her fucking job. That's true. Yes. Um, okay, and now now we get a very sharply dressed young white man. And I'm, I'm 
I don't I don't have to say that they're all white. No. I, I'm oh, doing yeah, that, yeah. but I don't have to because they pretty they all are. Yeah. They they all are. <laughs> I don't I don't have to say it. Um, I was doing that in my notes for a while because I thought maybe like we'll get some variation, but we never did. <laughs> so this guy, he's for Miriam. He's going to drive it in real hard. Yes, I've decided to vote for the present governor, Frank Merriam. Would you give us a reason why? Yes, I will. In the first place, I don't think Mr. Merriam has been given an opportunity to prove what he can do for our state. In the second place, I don't wish to see Upton Sinclair elected governor. I personally have a position that I value. I've worked hard. It's a small firm. It's an independent firm. I don't wish the businessman, my employer, to be forced to do things he doesn't like and in turn force them upon us and instead of being somebody in the firm, we'll just be individuals probably with a number. I don't wish to go to work every day, just to work for... He keeps looking up, like, into the upper part of his vision, too. Like, he's trying to remember his line. Mm. Like, this doesn't sound natural. No, it doesn't. Old woman was the best actress of the bunch. (laughs) She sounded so natural. Like, this is not... But you get it. He's with the business and the blah, 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 blah. It's the same talking points over and over. Yeah. Okay, and just just one more because this one is super convincing. Bring it on. My choice for governor is Mr. Haight. Will you tell us why? Uh, I want Mr. Haight in the governor's chair because Mr. Haight is progressive. Mr. Haight is young. He has new ideas. And I don't want Mr. Sinclair in the governor's chair. I have a little business here that I've worked many years to build up. Hard, day and night. And I don't want the state yeah, to win and okay. take it away. Just the delivery of the lines, yeah. too, is like, oh, Lord. And then, of course, the rest of them, they're all going to vote for uh, Miriam because Sinclair is too radical, blah, blah, blah. And then they have, like, a French man who's going mm. to vote for Sinclair because he's a socialist. I don't know. They just like throw in one French guy to French be like, look French. at this annoying French man. He's not American. You don't want to be like, yeah. And then immediately after the French man, they have a guy who says like, first of all, I'm an American. Oh, and I, Jesus. Like, they could not be more obvious. <laughs> How are you going to do that? Seriously. So, yeah. And this... I don't know. You could say that this worked. I think that um, hate getting like 13% of the vote kind of fucked Sinclair over. Would Sinclair yeah. have even been a good candidate? I don't know. Gosh. Probably. I don't fucking know. Probably not. I don't I'm know. Not, the I'm guy who did it probably expert. wasn't a, a great candidate. No, we're all bad candidates. Yeah. So when the votes were counted, Upton got 37% of the vote. Uh, Miriam got 48%. And hate got... 13. So, Dun-dun. you know, we don't know if hate wasn't there, how that 13% would have been counted. Maybe those 13% of people would have just stayed home because they didn't like the other two candidates. But you never know. It might have had some effect. So, I think, the, I think the, the, uh, those attack ads definitely, or like not even, oh, those, they, those fake men on the streets definitely had an impact. Oh, for sure. I mean, like Upton supporters all laughed at them like, oh, ha ha, we, yeah. we know that those are fake, but people, they other people didn't. They always do. Yeah, other people did not know. And I'm sure a few of those were also real, a few of the interviews. Oh, yeah. And, of course, this isn't where Upton's life ends. It ends in 1968. But 
this is where our episode ends because that's about all the nonsense in his life. <laughs> Everything else is just kind of. <laughs> Everything else is pretty par for the course. Right yeah. on. He's just like. There's some books, did some things. a regular author. Stuff you, know? you would teach in like history class. Yeah. Or, like, or English class. But this school. is the shit that they not teaching you. He's fucking. He's Uppy and downy. Uppy and downy. His wife is. Oh, and he did get a third wife, by the way, because Craig passed away in 1961, <laughs> oh, tragically. You can't even use your real name. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Craig's dead, baby. <laughs> I'm sorry. Craig's dead. Oh, God. I'm sorry. I didn't want to break it to you like this, but it's been a long time. <laughs> <laughs> There's no fucking way she would still be alive. I mean, yeah, I know. Like, <laughs> All these people are fucking dead. They're all dead. Uh, <laughs> except Jan. <laughs> Jan is immortal. Jan is eternal. Yeah, Jan's still out there. Okay. Some say that he's buried underground, still breathing, somehow keeping himself alive. Shit. I know. <laughs> so yeah, that what did what is the ending um bit here? I don't know. I guess like <laughs> sometimes you think Someone's boring. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you look into like their life. You look into to their not filmography, their whateverography that they've done, and you might find some interesting stuff there. Yeah, and like also, like we we tend to think of we tend to think of the past as like boring, mm-hmm. and and, and it's fucking so not, and just like stodgy and shit. No, it's fucking silly as all hell. It is like especially. Especially the early 20th century. Like, there's some wacky fucking bullshit going on. I know. This it has sounds me, fun. It has me wanting to, like, go go look more into it. Uh, I, I, got, I definitely got some topics coming up uh, from, that, from that time period. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know about his uh, experiments with mental radio. Me either. And some of these pictures, too, that they did are so I funny. I didn't know I was so, so neither fucking good at being a psychic. I had no idea how good I was at being an artist because my pictures blow theirs out of the water. Upton Sinclair sucked at drawing, yeah, I so I have that on him. It's true. Um, but I'm a Jew, so what does, <laughs> what does my drawings matter anyway? <laughs> okay. Um, all right. <laughs> okay, that'll... I'll do it for you. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for tuning into Upton Sinclair's Nonsense Hour here at the Nonsense Bazaar. Please subscribe to our podcast if you like it. Give us a a rating and a review on iTunes if you would like. Tell your friends. Yeah, especially tell your friends. Tell your former lovers. Mm. Tell your psychics. Tell your dentists. Telepathically. Yeah. Yeah. Just blast it out there. Mm Mm-hmm. See who picks up with their own mental radio. All right. Thank you guys so much. Love you. Take Take care. Take care. Bye.